Welcome to the Leadership Playbook, the show where successful leaders share what they learn to get to where they are. This podcast is an offshoot of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. And it's brought to you by RSMUS LLP, the nation's leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm your host, Joe Phillips, the Dean of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. Well, Bill Weiss, thank you so much for joining us today for the Leadership Playbook. We're having this recording because you are completing an incredible 50 years of full-time teaching at Seattle University, which is just amazing. And you've impacted so many students and so many alumni along the way, so it's an incredible legacy. And of course, I like the opportunity to thank you on behalf of all of them. So thank you, Bill. I thought I'd start out with the first question with the beginning, which is, how did Bill Weiss get to Seattle U in the first place? Well, first, thank you for inviting me to, to be a part of this podcast. Well, you know, a lot of times when people ask, why did I come out here? I, I assume they've not been to Northwest Ohio. Or they haven't grown up in a part of Ohio that is referred to as the Great Black Swamp because it used to be part of Lake Erie in the last geologic era. And getting away from there is an important uh, step in, in, in life. And, and I was uh, at the point where I wanted to make that move. And we didn't have a, I didn't have a good sense of it. I remember I knew Colorado was where you skied. And then I knew Alaska was where Seattle was, for example. And <laughs> so, but my older brother was on a matching program for his radiology residency. And he visited the University of Washington hospitals. It was one of his pick. I think it was his second pick. And the matching system put him at the University of Washington for his internship and residency in radiology. Coming out from Ohio, he said, even going out to visit, he said, well, it's unbelievable. You can't believe what it's like out here. There are huge mountains and wonderful water. And he said, it's just, it's paradise. So I, uh, you know, set about to try to figure out some way of getting a job out here. Now, this is in the middle of the Boeing Depression, which was a serious situation. And it played a little bit in my favor in that Seattle U was, was suffering also from the effects of the depression. And I was communicating with whoever I could find who would be interested in somebody who could teach accounting. I was a CPA, MBA at the time. And as it turned out, the chair of the accounting department at the University of Washington got a hold of our dean here, Gerald Cleveland, and said, you know, this person looks like somebody who may be able to fill in. At that point, he knew we were losing a really a wonderful accounting professor who was kind of also reading the messages on the wall that this area was going to be suffering. And, and so they needed somebody to, to teach accounting. And a few other things. And we had our budget for interviewing was pretty extensive, I think, uh, Jerry was on that call, the phone call for me for a half hour, and we were able to cover that long distance <laughs> phone interview. And for various reasons, he and David Tenius and Virginia Parks collaborated to, to bring me out. I didn't know very much about Seattle University. I'd never been to anything but public schools. And I was willing to come out if Jerry had said, hey, you know, we need somebody to teach accounting, but the electrical engineering department needs somebody to teach an introduction to electrical engineering. I was pretty much committed to being ready to do that if I had to be to get out of Ohio. So that got me out here. My very first class that I stepped into was business statistics. And advanced accounting was my second class that I taught. 
I remember distinctly to this day the impressions that I got from that first day of teaching because the maturity level that was coming from the class was something that I hadn't really experienced as an undergraduate or an MBA student at Bowling Green University. I was 26 years old and many of them were my contemporaries. They're, they're all my contemporaries except those that were much older than that. And immediately it struck me that, that they had a, there was a likability. They were not goof-offs. They were people that, they all seemed to be working, seriously. I mean, one, one was a full-time employee of this, the ferry system. Others were working to, to kind of minimize their debt. And, they, and it seemed like they'd worked all their lives. They just, they, they just kind of spoke from a mature position that I, didn't, I hadn't seen in the people I worked with at Ernst & Ernst. And that was true in both those classes. I was taken by how competent and how serious the accounting majors were. And I love teaching statistics, I have to say that. I mean, I, I'm going to remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do keep that in mind. I mean, I love teaching probability theory and inferential statistics. And, and I think I commented to you, you know, when we're out looking for, you know, athletic coaches, I would want to give them a probability theory test before we move them up to the finalists. So that got me out here and it really touched me because I thought, wow, these people are, they're much more mature than, than I am. And I had worked all my life. I'm in my, I think, 58th year of professional employment. I mean, they worked because they had to and went in debt because they had to. And I worked, you know, to have the experience of working and, you know, to kind of grow professionally. I have to say, well, echoing what my brother said when he called and he said, this place is paradise. I literally never looked back after I drove over Snoqualmie Pass. I thought, Ohio's back in that rearview mirror and I'm not going back, <laughs> no matter what. And I met a lot of people that were staying here because they weren't leaving either. I think now it's, it's fashionable to talk about the Boeing Depression as if it wasn't really that bad, it wasn't really that long, it wasn't really that deep. That wasn't my impression. Number one, about every other house on, sitting in the city had a HUD sticker on it. It had been redone and is, was up for auction. I had people in my classes who were on furlough from being airline pilots who were laid off as Boeing engineers. I mean, the Depression was deep. And they were people that said they wouldn't leave Seattle no matter what. And so this was my first exposure, and it was a great time to come out here. Coming in when everything's at the bottom is a good place to start out. <laughs> Next question would be, is all right, what are a few things that have changed about Seattle U and about Albers between the early 70s and the early 2020s? Yeah, well, first of all, all of our offices were on one side of the first floor, and we, sh we shared office space, and there was no atrium. There's the old Pickett building. You know, we served a lot of students, and, and this hallway had... Harriet Stevenson and Hildegard Hendrickson and Father Earl and Father Corrigan, David Tinius, Virginia Parks, Mary Margaret Davies, Khalil Deby, all of us were in this, in this hallway, Barbara Yates, just to mention people uh, that were, were here at that time. Sounds like a Hall of Fame. It was, yeah, it became a Hall of Fame. So it was a different environment. There was hardly any staff, <laughs> and, uh, and we all taught seven classes. We didn't have, you know, extra development money, and we didn't, of course, have any laptops on the desks. We each had a Selectrix typewriter, which had no memory, except for that if you wanted to correct that last letter that you got wrong, it would go back and put a whiteout over the letter. The dean's office, uh, very different than this, there were absolutely no, there was no typewriter. 
the dean, who was an amazing person and moved this school forward in remarkable ways, couldn't type his name. <laughs> so uh, the idea of creating manuscripts uh, on word processing, it wasn't even in anybody's mind. I think the first 25 articles that I published were done on a Selectrix typer on hand, you know, with your hand, and you kind of go through very carefully on that first typing because you don't want to do that too many times. Try to get that as edited as well as possible, and then hopefully the third time you can make all of the, you know, written corrections and make make it clean, and then somehow for photocopy three to six copies and put them in an envelope and send them to somebody in the mail, and then keep your fingers crossed that maybe they got someplace and someday you might get an acceptance letter back. I can't even conceive of that world now. Can't conceive of the fact that my dissertation is not on a word processor. So the infrastructure's changed, the technology. Now what hasn't changed? What's the same 50 years later? I'm not spending that much time in an undergraduate classroom today, so I, I can't, it's more difficult for me to speak to that. But my sense is that it's still very serious, that it's a, a space where people take what they're doing very seriously. I know later you'll want to talk about the experience with MBA 510. I always hired people to help me in that class. And I hired students under the State of Washington off-campus work-study program. And I got to know them very well. They were, they were young and they, and they were part of what was, to me, the, the campus undergraduate community at the time. And I was always envious of the experience they were having. I always thought I would have given anything to have had that kind of an experience as an undergraduate. They were committed to service. They were committed to very serious relationship building and friend building experiences, but mostly built around service. And I knew the accounting undergraduates quite well because I was very involved as, as an advisor in the Bay Alpha Psi program. And they were committed to doing service. I wouldn't even know what they were talking about. They would stop by on Friday afternoon and say, do you want to help out down at the, at the soup kitchen? Well, what's a soup kitchen? That's something out of the Depression era. And I did. They took me to do service with them. They took me to Yesler Terrace to do special dinners for new refugees. They just carried with them a maturity and a, and a seriousness and a likability that I really have never forgotten. And, I, and the likability certainly carried over into the MBA and the graduate school students also. They just were very congenial. So it was, despite what people say about Seattle being cold or something, I found it very warm and very serious and very welcoming. Now, you mentioned you were an accounting professor, but I was. now you're in a management professor. Yeah. And it's not the norm for faculty to switch disciplines like that. No, I don't know how I got away with that. So that's the <laughs> obvious question. How did that come about? Like, what motivated you to think about and do that shift? Yeah, well, I was a very ambitious Beta Alpha Psi, that's the accounting organization advisor, for 9 or 11 years, and I wanted to keep growing the experience. The experience was rich as it was because they were always holding major dinners every Monday night. We thought, well, let's start a, a leadership conference for the entire Western region, which was 11 universities uh, in a five-state area. We hosted that and put together activities for Beta Alpha Psi officers from the University of Washington, Oregon, Washington State, Idaho State, Montana, and we would hold these, and people would come from all over to attend these. There would be about 70 people. And about the third year, I realized that we were getting a lot of participation from Montana and Idaho. If we're going to continue to do this, we should move it over at least once and have it nearby the people on the east side of the 
region that we were in. So we held a leadership conference for a weekend in Coeur d'Alene at a camp called Luther Haven. And they had a challenge course. And I don't know what that is. They call it a co-op course. But I said, you know, we'd like to do that as part of our training. Most of our training was around programmatic issues for Beta Alpha Psi. And it was a half day that we spent on that challenge course. I was obsessed with evaluating every aspect of the leadership conference. And when it came to the challenge course, I think there were 58 people represented at the conference, and all 58 of them gave it a 10. So I thought, hmm, this is valuable. I started to, you know, incorporate it in future leadership conferences. I got my own training at a challenge course, and I started training the accounting majors <laughs> that were leading things to the point where we were able to go down to the University of San Diego and do a complete weekend leadership conference on the campus of University of San Diego for 75 people. I took, I think, eight people with me that were all trained in outdoor experiential activities, which, which are kind of dangerous activities the way we look at them today. And I'm amazed that we were able to do that. A year or two later, we went to the national conference and we held a leadership conference for all 200 guests at the university. It was San Francisco State was the host campus. And we set up challenges all over the campus and I had 25 people trained. This is all prior to going into this 510. This was all part of my, my duty as an accounting advisor to the Beta Alpha Psi students. And that was, a, that was a huge, you know, breakthrough. We had 15 different groups all over the campus doing activities, and we had it sequenced beautifully. And I commented to one of the people that, that had trained with me on a challenge course in, in Monroe. That he was a marketing major, an undergraduate marketing major. I said, you know, we ought to offer something like this to our MBA students because this, you know, this, this is really a powerful experience. And his name was Matt, Matt Mostad. And Matt's a person that would just make things happen. I, would, I have all kinds of ideas, but I never how to, how to I, I assume they're all impossible. Matt thought I was serious. And the next thing you know, he's lined up a course design person and, and we offered venture-based leadership for the summer session of 1993. And we didn't put a lid on it, and it, it accidentally went to 48 people. So we, I said, we can't handle that. Maybe we can't, the most we can handle at one time is 24, so they split it into two classes. The lion's share of those students were engineers, 40% worked for Boeing. They were pretty mature. They were older. They were, I think, average age 31. And the dean at the time, Jerry Viscioni, was using the capstone course in the summer to do, sort of do exit interviews with MBA students. All of these students were finishing. That's how they got in the course, because of seniority-based. He'd go into their policy classes, their capstone classes, after, and this, and this was the other class they were taking in both cases. And he called me and he said, these people can't say enough about this course. They said, this is the premier experience they've had in the MBA program, and they're leaving the program. And this big issue that came up, they said, why didn't this happen when I walked in the door? Because now I have 24 intimate friends and I spent three years in this program, and I came and I left, and I got to know occasionally one or two people. And now I have an intimate connection to 24 people that would have changed my entire experience as an MBA student. And Jerry Viscioni is the last person that would understand going outside and doing outdoor experiential training. He was an indoor person completely, but he said, this is feedback like I've never heard before for a course. And so he supported my teaching several more sections that coming school year. 
And then the following year, we took a full schedule of seven courses and did it all year long. Now I'm still in the accounting faculty, okay, so you can sort of see where this is going. At that point, I was involved in the revision of the MBA program. We did incorporate a startup course or an intake course that involved outdoor experiential training called 510, MBA 510. And that started in 1996. At the same time, the person I had mentioned before, Matt, most had decided to build his own challenge course at the what used to be the St. Thomas Center. And we began to do our overnight retreats at that center. Now I'm teaching 11 courses a year, basically, <laughs> it turns out, and I'm still on the accounting budget. So something had to give, and I was not behind the scenes to see how it happened. But some miracle happened that the management people allowed me to pretend like I was one of them because I was teaching a management class, and they thankfully brought me in. I don't know what, what would have happened. This was 25 years into my time at Seattle U. That's how I ended up being a professor of management. And then, you know, obviously we expanded from that to emotional intelligence. Well, you answered two questions I had oh, for good. you. One was, how did you make that switch? But the other was, tell us about the 510 course, because that's another yeah. big part of your legacy here, yeah. right? Yeah, well, that was, uh, I mean, again, it was a different era. We were teaching 11 times a year. I wasn't teaching all the sections. I'm very safety conscious, and I started out with four people teaching every section. One would be a student that I would be paying as a work-study person, and then I would hire other people like Matt. I mean, Matt would be a key player because he owned the challenge course that we used. I had an electrical engineering student, Bridget Dwyer. I had amazing people work for me. Very impressive, even though some of them started when they were freshmen working for me. And the classes went very well, probably thinking, how did we afford this? It cost me some money. I mean, I, I had to sit back one year and say, I'm paying a lot more than is being covered here. And my alternative would be teaching Introduction to Financial Accounting to MBA students. But when we changed the MBA program, we started funding it. It was two years we didn't fund it. We started funding the whole experience, and that made it a little easier financially. The class was open to everybody on campus, so we'd offer it 11 times a year. And they would go to 30 students for the most part. And we had a good retention program, as it were. We were a good MBA program. Part-time programs don't have good retention in general. Nationwide, it's about 50%. Ours became very high, but it changed rather dramatically when we introduced this course. And it, people took it. And Greg Prush and I did the study that looked at four years before the implementation and four years after, and we increased retention by 26%. It was already pretty high to begin with. What it did is it created what I would call now kind of virtual cohort. Everybody started the program out with 30 intimate friends. So when they came to the atrium, you know, after work, tired out from work and going to class, they came and saw intimate friends, people that had a, they had a deep connection to. And then that expanded. You know, we eventually started a pretty good system of study tours. And a lot of these people would collaborate with others and let's all go on the Italy study tour or the, or the France study tour. And then they would expand their group of people that they got to be really intimately connected to. You know, there was something, when I talk about this connection thing, I had taught for a long time in the program before we started this, accounting. And I was, you know, really touched by how accomplished and how likable and how important these people were. Because I would go out after class with people and have a beer or whatever. And then I realized that, that they never got really connected to each other. I would be connect to them individually here and there. 
And I would think this is a huge loss, an enormous loss of spending three years in a program with this caliber of colleague and never get to know them. And that changed with 510. 510 meant that you left the program with that group and plus your study tour groups and you might be leaving with 100 people that you have a really strong connection to. This is an area where most people want to spend the rest of their career working here. So having those kind of contacts is, I think, especially valuable in the Puget Sound area. So MBA 510 was a key instrument in retention. And I think just in the popularity of the program, I think we had to compete with, I mean, obviously we have to compete with the University of Washington. They started their night MBA program in 1990, 90 or 91. I remember going to a MBA meeting in Denver and they had just started the program and I was in the program with a director of their program. And that was a scary, scary thing for us because we always thought, well, you know, our MBA program is vibrant because UW only has a residential program. When they started a night program, we were really, we kind of felt threatened. But that's when we were busy implementing things like this and making that experience really rich. As you know, we attracted people from that program across the ship canal to do some of our study tours and to take our adventure-based leadership and emotional intelligence classes. So, you know, for a while we were seeing UW MBA students in the summertime in our classes. So it was part of our competitive posture. Now you mentioned the emotional intelligence courses. Now tell me about the evolution into those and how they got developed and how you developed an interest with that. Yeah, the person at that point that owned Teams and Leaders, which partnered with us for delivering the experiential courses because they had the challenge course and so forth, they were expanding their own consulting work to go into emotional intelligence. He had gone to the Hay Group and gotten cleared on the competency inventory. You know, he was sort of ripe to do something with emotional intelligence, and both of us were ripe for going back to the Italian Dolomites because we had a huge study tour in Italy for a while. Sometimes we had 65 people. And one year we decided to do an alpine afterglow, we called it. And anybody who wanted to go up and hike in the Italian Dolomites afterward, which is a completely different part of Italy, could do it. We had about 12 or 14 people that went one year. I think it was 2002. And we really thought, you know, this, this was pretty spectacular. I've never seen, despite living out here in the Pacific Northwest, the scenery in the Dolomites was stunning. And the whole experience was stunning. So Nils Peterson is the person I'm talking about. We started thinking, well, we should offer uh, something, some excuse to go back there with a course. And emotional intelligence was the logical thing. It's because you're, we're, we're together for five or six days. It's intense. And he had some ideas that we could bring to bear in terms of the training modality. So that got us going. It was pretty popular. The, the very first iteration of it was in 2003. And it was a small group, but the word got out that, you know, it was a pretty cool class. And we were up against, okay, if, you know, if you're offering this in the Italian Dolomites, it's only right to offer it domestically as well. So in the following summer, we offered a kind of an expanded course here, there. It started to get a little bit of a buzz as an important course to take. Now, it's grown, it's evolved enormously since those early days of hiking and talking and walking and talking and doing things. And we employ some really powerful teaching modalities, training really, they're training modalities in emotional intelligence that take a long time to sort of develop. I've trained a lot of people in it and all of them have exceeded my skill level substantially over time. And people who've taken my courses since accounting expect them to be experiential and they expect to change as a result of the course. 
So they, when they were seeing that I was teaching emotional intelligence, they were taking it not because they wanted to be able to define emotional intelligence, but because they wanted to exhibit emotional intelligent behaviors. The training modality we used, I think, really served that purpose. And it's to me right now, it's, I would call it my sort of flagship course experience. It's, it's a hard course to teach. It's exhausting. It's, I always think it's going to be fun. I'm not sure why I always think it. We've taught it 65 times. It's hard work. And it does call upon a skill set for leading things like basic skills training groups, for example, or T groups, teaching people how to coach and have the coaching skills, which tend to be the skills of emotional intelligence to begin with. So that's how we got going. We have a lot of heart into that class. And a lot of students love to take that class. Yeah, I mean, they, at least they, they love having taken it. <laughs> You know, that's a surprising piece of it. We plant a lot of seeds. We give people a communication model that's really effective in, a, in all areas of work and otherwise. And it tends to be something that takes some time and practice to develop. And we consistently run into people from two or three years ago and who will talk about what a difference it made in their early years in public accounting or wherever they were. I mean, Harley McGrath is the other, she's the sort of the key presenter and key teacher in the course in the last five years. And we'll say, no, what, what, didn't that person sort of sit there and scowl a couple of years ago? I thought they were bored sick, and now they're talking about how important that experience was. So it's a hard experience. It also is very labor-intensive. I mean, I typically have four people helping deliver that. It's hard to find people who are really have the artful skill set for leading T-group dynamics. And I work with some of the best in the, in the business doing that, Harley being the best. Kevin Bush with Teams and Leaders, Carly Warner with the University Hospital System. They have a, a gift for leading those kinds of interactions, and I'm sort of there to, to watch and, and to help in any way I can. One of the reasons we're proud to use T-Group is that the largest application of T-Group work now, this is a 75-year-old training modality, is at Stanford in the Stanford MBA program, where 75% of the students from that program take the elective called interpersonal dynamics, which involves 65 hours of T-group work. Now, our T-group is a more efficient format than theirs is, but they've become probably the largest training institution for T-group facilitators in the country, even probably more than the National Training Laboratories, which created the T-group in 1947. But our model is very much designed for OD training, for corporate training environments. It's a very efficient model. We don't use that many hours, but it's a powerful movement. It gets people using a language that, that's really effective. You know, we create people who are coaches, and we create people that, that have a different worldview than others. And we have activities that change the worldview of participants. Hard to explain, but it's a, it's a process you, you, have to, you have to go through it. Right. And those who have gone through it are very appreciative, I know. I've heard from so many of them. One of the things you mentioned was study tours. Tell us about San Sepulcro and the Pacioli Society and how all that idea got hatched and how it came to fruition and what's happened since. Yeah, well, this is a, people have, have actually used the word boondoggle. So it had a, a sort of a conspicuous start. It got started because I was teaching financial accounting to undergraduates, and I didn't prepare very well one night in 1984. And 
And I was kind of winging it a little bit, and I had my book open. It was one of those Irwin books, those blue Irwin books. And, and I looked down, and there was a footnote to this treatise that was, <laughs> that was dated 1494. And I just kind of made a spontaneous joke to the class. I said, here we are only 10 years away from the 500th anniversary of this seminal accounting treatise that was written by this monk back and published in the New Gutenberg Press in 1494. And that night I got talking to Dave Tinius and Barbara Yates. We were having dinner after our classes, and I said, you know, you know, we really should do something to honor the 500th anniversary. And so we had 10 years to plan the grand pilgrimage for accountants from all over the world to the, the town of San Sepulcro in Italy, which was Pacioli's birthplace and where he, where he was the director of the Franciscan monastery. As you know, you've, you've been there. And I don't know how we survived that year, 1994. We had enough people for two different weeks. We didn't have enough accommodations for everybody. So we had two weeks of seminar. I still have the proceedings that we published from, from that experience. About 50 people each week from all over the world. Some very serious accounting historians who, who I, th I don't think they appreciated the, maybe the lack of seriousness that we maybe brought to, the, to bear. You know, we were having bocce ball tournaments and we had a pretty good time. I mean, I say a good time. Dave and I lost 20 pounds between us. It was stressful. But it established, it brought all kinds of people to San Sepulchre. It was the, sort of the ship came, coming in. Two years before that, they were celebrating the 500th anniversary of the birth of Piero del Francesca, the grandson of San Sepulchre. And we said, well, Pacioli is you know, the father of accountancy. Two years later, this is really important. As it turns out, the Francesca Quincentennial didn't go that well. Ours went well. We had a crew from the BBC for the first week. We had a crew from the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting, for the second group. These are people that have pretty good senses of humor. And it was covered on daily television every night throughout Italy. And we got them to print a uh, 50 lira coin with Pacioli's head on it and a postage stamp. And we got, got them to erect a, a statue in front of the Church of San Francisco. And then we had this grand two separate weeks of festivities. And what can I say? You know, we thought, well, that was a lot. Maybe we should try it again. And we had a study tour that year. Chauncey Burke brought students over. Their main job over there was to be monitors of the papers that were presented. We had paper presentations for, it was a scholarly seminar. So we had about 25 students that did that. And then the next year we thought, well, let's, let's offer a couple of courses. And we did. And I think we had 50 people in Italy, in San Sepulcro the next year. We were staying in a monastery that was barely habitable, but it, you know, everybody kind of got along well in, in that space. We all were sleeping as, as monks slept 500 years ago. That was you, Dave Tinius, Chauncey Burke, and Barbier. Yes, it was, right. And first we started with two classes, and then we added a third class. I think one year we had, a, we had four classes. There were a lot of faculty that participated in the study tour, I mean, over time, teaching marketing and management and ethics. And, and I know that and it was stressful because it was a lot of people that to deal with, but it was great. You know, it was something maybe we kept, we were able to keep the cost really low and we were able to accommodate, well, we did accommodate up to 65 people. And that ran until 2010, that ran 17 years. And then we took a, a break. <laughs> At that point, the Dolomites program had started up, and that kind of kept going. 
And then we resuscitated that, would have been resuscitated in the middle of the pandemic, except that that was impossible. So it, it started again last summer and with two courses and is running this summer again with good enrollments. So we're back in San Sepulcro and waving the Pacioli flag again. Right. Terrific. So another kind of seminal part of your career, I think, is the work you did around smoking in the workplace. Thank you for that work. I personally appreciate it. You know, I very much treasure not having smoking in my workplace, so thank you. But can you talk to us a little bit about how that got started? And it, it wasn't just at Seattle U, but it was a nationwide effort that you ended up being part of. Yeah, yeah, and when you asked earlier, you know, how did things change at the Elber School? Well, the, the halls are not blue with smoke during our breaks, and they, and they were then. When I finished my dissertation in 1979, I fairly quickly put together six publications from the dissertation. And I found that to be a you know, fairly isolated and lonely activity. And I remember sitting down with my old dissertation chair and he said, boy, we have a, your agenda, your research agenda here is, is really rich. And I, I had a feeling of getting nauseous to <laughs> think about six more articles on the challenges of financial reporting in the nonprofit sector. And I said, you know, if I'm going to publish and continue to write, I got to write something that has more impact. Wall Street Journal at the time had, and I can't think of the name of this publication that they had, but scholars would contribute to it. It, was, it came out once a week. And they had a contest out there on, on recommending how you could get a huge rate of return on investment. And I thought to myself, you know, both my brothers were doctors, and you know, I surmised that if smoking is really as, as debilitating as we actually knew it was, it had serious business consequences. So I wrote a column for the, this Wall Street Journal piece. Well, that's when they were doing sketches of you, you know, when you, the columns, I don't know if you remember that. And I said, invest 10 cents in a no smoking sign. And I wrote this column and it, and it was explosive. And then I started writing more, you know, through the magic of secondary research, just collected, you know, bits and pieces from people that had done serious research on the, on the actual costs of smoking to health and to, and to the work environment. And I'd piece these things together with mortality rates and morbidity rates and maintenance rates, so, you know, cleaning carpets and repainting. I mean, there were all kinds of things that contributed. And I started publishing on the cost of smoking in the workplace. The timing was right. I mean, my research was secondary and assembling data and, and coming up with estimates. But it was at the point where you, there were a lot of people running businesses that wished they could get rid of smoking. And they didn't think they could. They thought there was some kind of a civil right to smoke at your desk and to smoke at the work environment. I had to address that. I couldn't find lawyers that understood employment at will well enough to, you know, to bring into my seminars that I would run. I did talks around the world. And I finally did find one of our law professors who was at UPS at the time who really could address that issue because liability was going to be the biggest issue, the one that I never monetized because we were knowingly exposing people to toxic work environments, which creates a huge common law problem because we could have eliminated it with this 10 cent smoking sign. I probably published 35 articles and gave I don't know how many talks and worked with the Surgeon General. Surgeon General Coop was absolutely committed 
to a smoke-free America. And, and Coop was a funny, he was a funny person in, in many ways. I say he was a funny person because he was, he was appointed to the Surgeon General by Ronald Reagan, and he was recommended by Senator uh, Jesse Helms. And Jesse Helms was wholly owned by the tobacco industry. And so when Surgeon General Coop came out and said, well, we're, we're going to do away with smoking, I was like, well, what's going on here? That was not the reason he had been appointed. But we made enormous changes. But the changes really, in terms of the change in the smoking behavior, occurred when businesses started to place restrictions. Pacific Northwest Bell was a key player nationally. Len Bile, who is one of our graduates and played basketball for Seattle University, was the head of personnel down there. And we got together and we, through all kinds of things, we got PMB bought into this. They had a very populist CEO at the time called Andy Smith. He said, we can't do this. People can't, won't put up with this. But when he found out from our survey of the employees, nobody wanted smoking around anymore, including the smokers. He changed his whole view. And we took him to the Waldorf Astoria boardroom, along with Surgeon General Coop and then representatives from General Motors and General Mills and Johnson & Johnson. And we sat around while Andy Smith just entertain people because they'd say, well, how could you possibly have done that? You know, we're a fully union, unionized organization. We could never implement a smoking policy. And Andy would respond, well, we have 13 unions. They're all talking health and safety. This is a big issue. And you got to talk health and safety when you're sitting around with people smoking. So PMB was a key power. Everybody, their mouths fell open in the Waldorf Astoria Surgeon General Coop is there, and they're all saying that's not possible. And I'm sure Andy spent a lot of time after that following up with people. Then they started going one after the other. But, you know, the last organization to do anything was this one. And I'll have to close with that story because now at this point I'm notorious for I'm public enemy number one for the tobacco industry. And occasionally the question will come, well, what about your organization? And I, then I kind of shrink, you know, into the corner. I think, oh, well, uh, yeah, let's see, what about my organization? So we were still smoking in the hallways, and, and I thought, this, this is humiliating. So I, enli- I think the statute of limitation has expired now, so I'm going to bring in the names of Dave Tinius and Barbara Yates, both, because one Sunday evening we came into the Piggott building, the ashtrays for smoking, these were canisters that stood about four feet high. They were enormous canisters, and there was a lid that was sort of the ashtray on the top. And the three of us took all of the canisters, and we deposited them in the dumpsters at the other end of campus, and we took the tops, and we locked them in a locker someplace in the bottom. So the canisters were separated from the locker. We were pretty sure the I think we, we knew that the dumpster would take all these things the next day. And then we put up the 10-cent no-smoking signs at each end of the, the entrance to Piggott. And that was the last time, the last time there was ever smoking in Piggott, in Piggott Hall. And I pretended like I knew nothing about it. And, of course, the word I got out on campus, why were we smoking in, in this building or that building? Piggott, a man smoking. <laughs> And I remember having to, to lie. A reporter from The Spectator came and sat down in my office, and she, I'm sure, knew damn well. <laughs> she was told, I'm sure, it had to be, Weiss had to be behind it, and I just acted surprised. I said, well, I think it's, it's long overdue, but I can't say much more about it, but I think it's working. I don't know if you'd heard that story, or if you can imagine Barbara Yates carrying these canisters, you know, out to the dumpster. But, you know, yeah, I suppose there was a high value in, in those. I suppose we destroyed a lot of property. 
So you mentioned industry. Did they push back or did they just sit on their hands while you were? Oh my God, the Tobacco Institute had a monthly publication called the Tobacco Observer. It devoted the entire issue to me once. It was a UCLA education dean, school of education dean, and he was criticizing my research. Well, my research was, it was secondary research, so I was an assembler of information. No, I was public enemy number one. Ogilvy and Mather sent people around to different cities. So I'd come to work in the morning, and they would sit at the newspapers. The newspapers were a key medium at the time. I'd walk in my office and I'd have six phone calls from Dallas and you know wherever the Ogilvy and Mather team was. And they would traipse in with this UCLA School of Education and prostitute. And then there was somebody from James Madison also. I'd answer the phone and they'd say, well, what do you have to say about something? And I'd say, well, I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, it's in the paper here and I'd be completely blindsided. I didn't have a clipping service. So I didn't know what went in the San Jose uh, Gazette uh, <laughs> at the last time. So no, it was, it was aggressive. And then finally, Gene Godden was on the city council here after that, but Gene Godden worked for the Post-Intelligencer, and she was a columnist. And she called me one day, this is before she went on the city council. She told me, she said, well, Ogilvy and Mather arrived today with Dr. So-and-so from UCLA. And she said, I've not seen an act like this in the, all the time I've been here. She said, this is what you're up against. These are high paid PR people and they're here to smear you. They're here for me to write a column saying that I'm a fraud. Everybody was on my side. You know, I, I would, would have had a hard time defending myself to some of this, but she wrote the column up and she said, this, this was you know, serious business. I got threats. Uh, I got phone calls at four in the morning. And you know, it was scary, it was, it was scary. The tobacco industry was not an industry that, you know, that had huge ethical or moral values. So I felt a little uncomfortable. I was a little accounting instructor, which is, Philip Morris called me once. He's just this little renegade accounting professor is causing all these problems and he's gotta be stopped. It was hard work when we eventually created the Smoking Policy Institute, which took care of most of the work. And I had an executive director, and Len Bai was the president of the board. And, and we were doing a lot of work that was pretty official through then. And I started, started pulling away from it. I had created the, the hysteria. And then there was, a, there was a, an institute on campus that kind of took care, for a long time it was on campus, that sort of took care of setting up consulting practices and engagements. And then after 15 years, I mean, it's, it's war, and war is not healthy uh, for the psyche. And I was, you know, I was battling the tobacco industry. And it wasn't, you know, it sounds like fun, but, it's, you know, you're under attack all the time. And, and it's nice that you're winning. It's great that we were winning. I mean, there is no tobacco institute left, and there's no tobacco observer. And the smoking rate is at 6%, and it was at 35% when I started this. You know, that to me means millions of lives. And so that's probably the most satisfying thing I did. My brother was a radiologist and one of his, who was the head of radiology at Group Health actually, the, the person that was always calling me to make sure I was doing okay. He said, because you're, you're key to this. So we, all we're doing is reading x-rays and giving the bad news to people. And you're changing the smoking rate. When they said, it's not okay to, to smoke at work. That changed the image of smoking as some adult behavior. The industry concentrated on seducing children to the habit of smoking with the imagery that this is adult behavior. 
And when children finally realized that their parents couldn't smoke, you couldn't smoke when you go to, go to work, it was very helpful for people. It gave everybody incentive to stop. It's hard for me to, to imagine walking out of at halftime, you know, of my accounting class into the hallway. And we had a large alcohol studies program. It was a wonderful program that Father Royce ran. But it was 100% smoking that went on. And they would walk out and the halls were just ghastly. It'd be hard to talk to somebody at a college age now. They wouldn't even know what you're talking about. So you couldn't possibly have been smoking in, indoors. It's not even feasible. Mm-hmm. But it was. It's what people did. Yeah, they did. It's hard to believe. The difference it made is that this country was 20 years ahead of the rest of the Western world, and they eventually followed what this country did, but it did accelerate the pace. Nothing was happening until you made it a business issue. The health issue, they, they handled that pretty well. You anticipated my next question, which would be, what were you most proud of? I think that was the answer, right? The, the smoking campaign. And, yeah, it was the most important. And like you said, it was a very, very valuable contribution to the health and welfare of society, not just domestically, but globally. Next question, and my last question, is I know you have students coming up to you all the time saying, oh, Dr. Weiss, you're just a, my, one of my favorite professors. You, you have so much wisdom. What advice would you give me as I graduate from Seattle U? So that question, I'm sure, comes up. Yeah. And I'm sure you have good answers for them. And my, my question is, what's the answer today? And is it the same answer you would have given 50 years ago? You know, I think as I look back 50 years now, I think maybe the answer, if I were making that based upon what I know now for that, it would be the same. But now I'm teaching, you know, leadership, and I write all my own material. All my material is is mine. And I wrote a manuscript called The Power of Need. And predicated on if you're going to grow in an organization, you know, you need to leverage your time because you only have so much time, and now you've got 100 people that are responsible for their productivity. So delegation is a, is a critical skill. And, and so now I think about how I've survived as long as I have in the last 10 years. I'm not the principal teacher in my courses anymore. I had the good fortune of hiring really amazing people, even when they were undergraduates here. And I remember every one of them. I noticed early on, that they were good at picking up the skill set that I had for outdoor training and processing and debriefing group experiences and eventually doing the, the aspects of emotional intelligence. I also noticed that they got better and then they exceeded my capacity. There's a limit to how much I can bring to that space. There's a limit to how good I can become with my own lack of social awareness as a facilitator for T-group work, for example. And I've had the luxury of having really great people to work with. And I had then the luck of getting away from my own eagle and realizing that my job is to deliver the best possible course I can. And if that means my role is going to be less because I have two or three people that are doing this work more effectively than I am, I'm going to pull away. And I think the ability to really trust in the people that I'm objectively looking at and saying, you know, you have a real gift for this. I'm seeing a gift in you that I don't have. And getting out of their way and giving them more and more responsibility. I think that that's, you know, why I'm not a retired, you know, 10-year retired management professor or a 20-year retired accounting professor because I've been supported by people that are really, really effective. And I think their support was in part because I leaned on them. 
and I was not afraid to say I really need you to to step up and do this because you bring something I that I can't bring to this space. And one of the things we see in out, particularly outdoor training, is we see that oftentimes people cannot do that. They cannot can't ask for help. You know, we put them in circumstances outside where they can't climb a giant ladder without getting two other people to help them. And for many, that's that's like pulling teeth to ask for help. They can help others, but they can't accept it. And if you can't do that, your ability to delegate effectively is significantly impaired. If if I've got all these people around me and I have to let you let everybody know all the time that I like you, it's nice having you here, but I want you to know that I can do this without you. You know, I'm not going to get the best work from them and they're not going to stay. But if I convey to them, you know, you really need it. I really need what you bring to this space. Then they're going to grow in the space and they're going to convey to the next person that comes around to maybe work for this organization, this is a place that really honors who you are and really really recognizes your contribution. And I think that's a huge thing because I've seen it in other people where they have, they'll have an ego about their teaching and they'll, they'll be threatened by some of the people like at teams and leaders or at PAWS who you could, I use the word exploit in a very positive way. When I see somebody with those kinds of skills, I want them to do more. I have to be very, very consciously not tied up in my own ego and realize that the people I'm teaching with are going to look better than I look and the course is going to be better than it would be if I were the one sort of being the lead deliver person. So delegating effectively and conveying to people, we really, I really need you. You're really contributing important work to this environment. You're not just people I like, but I can do without you. I really need you here. And I've gotten that feedback in looking at how people have written about my manuscripts. The power of, of need tends to be the one that resonates most acutely with people. And it's probably the most important sort of leadership quality that I can kind of reduce things to. Need the people that are around you. Wow, that's great advice. Thank you so much, Bill, for coming in to chat. Let me be the first to say that we need you here in Albers, right? <laughs> Appreciate, again, all the contributions that you've made over the years and that you will continue to make because you're going to stay here at Seattle U and continue to teach, and that's good news for everybody. And thank you for creating an environment where I was able to do a lot of different things. It's, you know, it's pretty hard to come in and you know, do smoking and pacioli and emotional intelligence and accounting. It takes a lot of flexibility. It's a rarity, so thank you for that, those opportunities. You've been listening to The Leadership Playbook, the podcast edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series at Seattle University. If you enjoyed what you heard today, Consider telling a friend and give us a good rating on iTunes. You can subscribe to our show for free on your favorite podcast app or find us online at leadershipplaybook.org. Find out who our next guests are by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Joe Phillips, the Dean of the Albert School of Business and Economics. Thanks for listening. <laughs>